Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. You can turn into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're in verses 6 through 13 tonight. And uh, as you turn there, let's go ahead and we'll begin in a word of prayer. Precious Father, we have been learning so much from this wonderful letter as we've been working through it, certainly very slowly, and certainly not uh, addressing every particular matter that we could But Lord, our hope is that we have come to understand the intent of Paul's admonition to the Corinthians and can see the very things that we wrestle with as a church and ourselves personally perhaps as our arrogance and pride can lead us to compromise the integrity of the gospel message or perhaps because of the desire for fame or accolades or um, uh, perhaps even an I-told-you-so kind of attitude, a a desire to be successful in the eyes of men, um, we can neglect the ministry of the Word and look to ourselves for intrinsic power in the gospel message rather than the power being in that gospel itself. power that you have given it. And so, Lord, we do pray that we ourselves would be effective vessels that please you, that honor you. And, Lord, that certainly does passionately proclaim the message of salvation to the world. As we come together tonight, we continue to see warning from the church in Corinth as well and how easily arrogance can corrupt the way we think and can take for granted your blessing, wrongfully assuming that simply because of blessing, we also have your pleasure. Lord, we would be dishonest if we were not to say that we desire both. We certainly do but for your glory and yours, your name's sake only, and so that people would remember your holy name and not us. We ask these things in your Son's name. We pray. Amen. Follow along with me as I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 6, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, 
upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. A couple of years ago, my wife and I took a group of ninth graders to Yosemite National Park for a week, and I think um, there is perhaps nothing more that will make you rest in the sovereignty of God than taking a group of rambunctious ninth graders to a place where cliffs abound, as well as rushing 40-degree water and massive waterfalls that could uh, certainly carry them to their deaths. And there were a couple of the boys who wanted to go hike uh, Upper Yosemite Falls. If you're not familiar with Yosemite National Park, it is part of the greater Sierra National Forest. And you have the valley floor that is sort of encaptured in by these massive granite walls going thousands and thousands of feet high. And so Mel and I thought, you know, the central feature of Yosemite Valley is obviously Yosemite Falls. And we thought we could do that. It was March, uh, and now the, uh, the valley floor has an ev- elevation of about 4,000 feet, but as we approached the 6,000-foot summit, it was still covered in snow and ice um, in the Merced River, which goes through the valley and uh, cuts through the higher upper countryside, and before it goes over, Yosemite Falls was roaring, so you could hardly hear. And March is a, is a very rushing time of year. They get tens of feet of snow all at once. We measure our snow in inches. In these areas, they measure their snow in feet. And um, the Merced River is fed by snowmelt. It was icy green color with steep granite banks on both sides before it goes over the cliff down to Yosemite Valley below. And although it was pretty humorous at first, watching these boys from Southern California in their vans and uh, ski coats trying to traverse and negotiate through icy terrain and um, slipping and sliding all over the place, it began to get a little bit nervous by the time we summited and I began to have visions in my head of one of them going over because the summit was also a little bit rounded and then it pitched towards the cliff. So if you slipped, you could potentially keep sliding along that slick granite surface and just go right over. And as you crept up the edge, you could peer over and look 2,000 feet straight down. And I think the, the edge was even undercut a little bit, a terrace. And um, cut into the side of the cliff was this little edge that you could walk down and... Um, you could stand right alongside the point where the falls rolled over to the valley below, and the ledge was only about a foot wide, cut into the side of the granite wall. And there was no railing or anything to keep you from going over the cliff side. Just a little railing, a metal railing, that was drilled into the side of the granite wall on the granite wall side. So you had a hand railing going down this very steep, uh, wet granite uh, ledge, but you had nothing to keep you from going over. So if you misstepped and you weren't holding on to the onto the um, 
railing tightly, you could easily go well fast over a 2,000-foot fall. And I started having second thoughts, and I started thinking about a phone call I was going to have to make to one of their parents trying to explain how their kid slipped and fell off the cliff. They didn't seem to be aware of the real threat, the danger, (laughs) in going down this little footpath. And over the years since Yosemite became a national park in 1906, there have been about 2,000 deaths, even as popular as the park is, and how touristy, in fact, it has become with shuttle buses and paved roads and massive parking lots and people toting massive heavy cameras all over the place. It is the last thing in truth that a backpacker uh, would want to go to because it is so overridden with people and hotels and shops and all kinds of things. It doesn't speak of of the rugged terrain that it once was, the remoteness. You have to get into deeper into the backcountry for that. Um, but uh, there had been about 2,000 deaths, about 20 every year, almost 20 every year. And although many of them were caused by simple freak accidents, the great majority of them were caused by careless, reckless, simple decisions that were made in just a split second. Decisions that you and I make every single day. The kind of careless, cutting corners uh, decisions that we make, most of which we don't even realize. Things like uh, cutting or, or maybe skinning an apple towards yourself. Or um, I'm not sure what other kind of silly things you might do. Climbing on a, on a roof that's a little bit icy or um, you know whatever it is. Maybe trying to change a light bulb while it's still a little too hot. Last week I was, uh, you know, the light bulbs in our house hadn't been changed in quite a while and, you know, sometimes they kind of corrode into the socket and uh, the glass popped and twisted out and so it left the light bulb socket inside the light fixture and um, I go to get my tweezers and I think to myself, I really should go off and go turn off the circuit breaker. But I was too lazy to go down the stairs and turn off the circuit breaker and uh, in fact... I couldn't see because it was night, and I kept forgetting to do this in the daytime, and it was sort of irritating me because out of sight, out of mind. So I let the light on, and I think, well, I just won't, I just won't touch the side of the metal, so it'll create the arc. And I start doing this, and Mel goes, shouldn't you? And as soon as she says it, I slit, I complete the connection, and sparks fly, my pliers fuse together in place, and uh, I say, yes, I should. <laughs> so I went and turned off the fuse and got a flashlight. Those kind of careless decisions, though, are what cause deaths in a dangerous environment. The kind of decisions that you really don't give much thought to. Can I beat the yellow light? Can I turn out in front of that car in time? Uh, can I get out in front of that vehicle before the passing lane ends. Just this last year, two highly experienced climbers fell off the face of El Capitan, a 3,000-foot granite wall. Uh, A climber about 200 feet below them recounted the whole thing. The two friends had passed him earlier using a climbing technique known as simul-climbing, where the bottom of the rope isn't anchored into the granite wall. And what that means is that if one falls... Uh, there is a high probability that he'll take the other person with him because you're not really anchored in very well. And so his momentum will not keep you secure. 
uh, with your cams in the side wall. But they were using this uh, simulclimbing, their speed climbing. It's a very popular technique, not popular when you're climbing in pairs, more popular when you're climbing solo. And so this is the easiest section of the climb, though. In fact, one of them had climbed this section of, of um, El Capitan called Free Blast almost 100 times already. They were very well acquainted with this section. And Free Blast is about 1,000 feet up from the valley floor. And like I said, they had climbed it so many times before. And the climber that, was, that they had passed thought, well, these guys are the real deal. He saw what they were doing thought, well, that's a little reckless. That's a little careless for the sake of a little bit of extra time. But they seem like they know what they're doing. And so he didn't say anything. And ultimately, climbing experts concluded that this was a textbook example of the grim consequences of overconfidence, complacency, and poor communication. And as you look to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul has been giving us from the example of the Israelites the grim consequences of overconfidence and complacency in the Christian life. The real danger, the threat that is imposed by carelessness And over the last two weeks, we saw that blessing doesn't necessarily mean God's pleasure. As Paul gave multiple examples just from Israel's wilderness wanderings alone of how God, because of His own goodness, out of His sovereignty and for His own glory, chose to bless a nation even though they were persistently characterized by rebellious, evil, and arrogant spirits. And so now in verses 6 to 13, Paul tells us how we should respond to the deadly hazard of sin. And we need to take into account the 2,000 deaths of Yosemite Valley before us, and in large part the carelessness uh, that, was, that contributed to those, and relate those, that carelessness to spiritual realities. What realities in our own life are prone to compromise Uh, spiritual lethargy, spiritual carelessness, and recklessness that ultimately results in spiritual disaster. Jonathan Edwards said, It is the nature of a stone to be heavy. So, if mankind are of such a nature that they have a universal, effectual tendency to sin and ruin in this world where God has made and placed them, this is to be looked upon as a pernicious tendency belonging to their nature. What is our nature? Our nature is to slip, slide off the cliff into sin. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, even as Christians redeemed, Paul talks about the weakness of our sinful flesh. And so knowing our own tendency to sin, how should we apply the example of the Israelites? Well, that's what we read in verses 6 through 13, which all comes together in summits In verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. 
Paul gives us five ways that we should respond to the testimony of Israel by giving five examples of their own carelessness that resulted in destruction. They're easy to pick out because, once again, we're just following the verbs here. And because of time, once again, we're really only going to look at the first one. And um, I can't guarantee... Actually, you know what? Next Sunday night, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is the prayer pie and praise. That's right. So we'll need to send out a push notification because we didn't put that in the bulletin or announce that to you this morning. So prayer pie and praise... Write it in your calendars. We'll send out a push notification too so that you can be prepared for that. But um, when we come back then, week after next, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on Sunday night, we'll finish up as far as we can uh, the remaining of these five reminders that we have. The first four are negative. Do not do. Do not be like. Here's the example of the Israelites where they failed. And the last one is positive. Take heed in order that something negative doesn't happen to you. Number one, obviously, do not be idolaters. Now, in case you think you might be above idolatry, isn't it interesting that Paul parallels his exhortation to Christians with Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt? Because what is the assumption? I mean, given the miraculous nature of Israel's redemption, not to mention preservation from famine in, uh, in the land of Egypt, and then preservation throughout their time in the land of Goshen, the most fertile area, region in the, in the um, Delta Nile area of Egypt. But God miraculously powerfully brought them out of Israel, showed them His power, His greatness, when He divided the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army and Pharaoh, completely annihilated them. And so the last thing you would think of the, of the Israelites at this point is that they would immediately fall into idolatry. Where likewise, we can be prone to think, well... I'm not in that context. I'm not bowing down to any idols. I've been redeemed. And rather than really investing in uh, searching the nature of our hearts and our own rebellious spirits and discerning what things do I value and esteem higher than God and place before God, we, we readily write off, I'm no idolater. I'm no idolater. Maybe you'll be ready to admit, well, I was an idolater before I came to Christ, but I certainly don't fall back into that anymore. Not a problem. You might not have been brought out of slavery in Egypt, but we all have been brought out of slavery to sin, and yet we still have the same exhortation in verses 6 and 7. And folks, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to believers Therefore, stands to reason that if idolatry is going to be a problem for them, idolatry is going to be a problem for us. Do not be idolaters. Again, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. You have been set free from your bondage to sin, and yet Paul is still very concerned that you would slip back into your former practice of idolatry and get disqualified from the race that is set before you, disqualified from your evangelistic opportunity, be disqualified from the blessing and the fruit of your evangelism because of your complacent and overconfident attitude towards sin and instead fall under the disciplinary hand of God rather than receiving the crown of righteousness. Paul says again, verse 6, these things happened as examples for us. Actually, the word there in Greek is the word tupos. It means type. These things happened as a type for us. And that's all type means. It just means a form, means a pattern, an example, an image. There's nothing mysterious about a type, but Paul says this is a tupos, an example. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grants you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction, for the purpose of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is that we wouldn't crave the same evil things as they also craved. And do you see how the Corinthians compromise as to their, the, the, the veracity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture? And, and their compromise in, in, in their methodologies, their, their methods in even presenting the gospel and the factious culture that they began to develop with man-appealing entertainment led them to ultimately crave the same things that the Israelites craved. They didn't. Paul wouldn't admonish them this way. But he wants to warn them they wouldn't crave evil things as they also craved. He begins to see the compromise in their life. And that is always the way it happens. You compromise the integrity of the text you will compromise the integrity of your life. And that is why we place a premium on the preached word and centrality of teaching and discipleship in every ministry that we do. Those are our priorities. And first, Paul says, as idolaters. Idolaters. This is horrific. The people ate... Rather, they sat down to eat 
and drink and stood up to play. Where's that from? Do you remember? That's a quote. Some of your Bibles might tell you, cross-referencing to Exodus chapter 32. Which we looked at last week, I think. It might have been the week before that. Exodus chapter 32, when they worshipped the golden calf. I think it was two weeks ago when we actually looked at uh, the section of Exodus chapter 32 where Moses petitions God to turn his wrath away, to grant forgiveness, to not wipe them out because of the promises he made to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God does. He turns away his wrath. But now we're, we're actually particularly looking, honing in on Exodus chapter 32 when they fall into worship of the golden calf. Now we have Thanksgiving coming up, and many families will gather around their tables and sit and eat and eat and eat and eat. And then once they've done all their eating, the uh, adults will sleep after they eat. And the children, no doubt, will rise up and go out to play, probably football. And that is not the kind of playing that Paul nor Moses, when he wrote Exodus chapter 32, were talking about. The Israelites fell into idolatry, and with idolatry, they fell immediately into a filthy, reprehensible sex orgy in the same way that characterized the pagan cult worship that they had grown accustomed to observing in the land of Egypt. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 32 for just a moment. I'd like you to see this. And starting in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. In other words, quick, before something changes. There's a sense of urgency here when Aaron says, tear them off. Tear them off. Let's hurry before we lose our opportunity. It's a sense of urgency. They're rushing. You can just hear Aaron saying, hurry, hurry, hurry. Come on, come on, come on, come on. This is what you want to do. Let's get it done. Before Moses comes back. The issue is this. Their hearts were both ready and eager to sin. They just needed the opportunity. And as soon as the opportunity presented itself, they ran with it. Found an excuse. Oh, we don't know what became of Moses. So here we have our excuse for rebelling against what we know is right. And they're going to do this thing in the presence of God, in the image of the golden calf. 
Remember, because that's who they say this is. Now, is God present? He certainly is. He sees what they're doing. But he's not in the golden calf. But as far as the Israelites are concerned, we'll do this right before the God who took us out of the land of Egypt, right there in the golden calf. But we fashioned with our own hands. And we rushed for the opportunity to, to rebel. They just needed this opportunity. And so in verse 3, then all the people tore off the gold rings. So there, there you have it again, the sense of urgency, this sweeping rush to sin. And as soon as the opportunity presents itself, we continue. They were in their ears. They bring them to Aaron, and he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to Yahweh. So the next day, they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Isn't that pitifully despicable? Isn't that just what we do? You who aren't idolaters... Because, I mean, come on, we're in the 21st century here. Reprehensibly worship and hypocrisy. Speaking of rushing headlong into sin, Amos 5 tells us a grim declaration of judgment that goes all the way back to this same account. And this is God speaking. So much for uh, coming just as you are to worship apostate Christian songs that we sing. I hate, I reject your festivals. Did you know that God can hate your worship? Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Well, assembly. What's the Greek word for that? Ecclesia. What's ecclesia? The church. Don't delight in your church. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, even though you worship me, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps. I mean, think about this. I mean, what wasted time. All this effort of worship in hypocrisy can go on for decades. And it certainly characterized Israel's worship in Exodus chapter 32. And not, it's not that just, well, I mean, you're pouring water into an empty bucket here. You're pouring fuel into a bucket with a hole in the bottom over a fire. And this thing is going to 
explode. Catastrophic consequences. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Now listen to this. This is Amos 5.26. You also carried along Sukkoth, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods that you made for yourselves. All this, and Israel brings idols along with them. They're ready and eager to rebel. So just to set the stage in Exodus chapter 32 again, now that you understand what God thinks about this kind of worship, Israel premeditatively plans out its sin, and they're strategic about it in order to ensure its success. They're going to do it quickly before any sense of accountability comes, before anybody stops them, before Moses comes back. Well, we don't know what happened to him, so... And why the rush? Why the rush? And once everything is all set, they go and pay their homage to God, and then they do whatever they wanted to do. Or more specifically, Exodus 32, 6 puts it, and then the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Without being unnecessarily graphic. You look at the word play in a Hebrew lexicon, and it's actually the word for fondle. And quite frankly, that interpretation, if you would read what these sex, these cult sex ceremonies were like, um, that would be a polite way to put it to describe what's happening here. I mean, what horrible, horrible hypocrisy because of their idolatrous hearts. Hurry up. Fashion, well, fashion an idol. And tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They rise up early, offer him burnt offerings, bring peace offerings. And then they go on into this cult sex ceremony. That's what is meant by play. By the way, in Judges chapter 16, verse 25, after Samson's hair was cut and his eyes were gouged out, you're familiar with that story, and he was betrayed by his wife, the Philistines had one of these cultic feasts like the one that Israel is having now. And so in verse 25 of Judges 16, they say, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. Uh, presumably, while he's chained to two pillars. We read in the text that he is forced between two pillars. Most likely he is chained to these two pillars. And that word entertained, same word. So what's happening here in Israel is 
utterly unspeakable. Unspeakable rebellion. And it's out in the open. It's in broad daylight at the foot of Mount Sinai. And see, here's the thing. God created us to be worshipers. Worship is knit into the fiber of our being as it is to be human. It's what it means to be human, to be worshiper. But when you intersect that with our post-fall, depraved human nature, then all of a sudden idolatry is knit into the fiber of our being because we're still worshipers. Just now, we're worshipers of anyone or anything other than God. And because of that, we're so prone to idolatry that it's really not a question of whether or not you have or you gave the reverence or affection or dedication or commitment to something that should be reserved for God today. It's more how sensitive you are to idolatrous lusts such that you recognize the idolatry you committed today. You get the difference? Not a question of whether or not you committed idolatry today. It's a question of whether or not you recognized it for what it is. Because we are so prone to it as rebellious worshipers. Maybe prioritizing luxury over generosity, prioritizing self over service, prioritizing comfort over sacrifice, prioritizing feelings over truth, prioritizing games over commitment. Every time you sin, that is a selfish act of idolatry. Prioritizing your affections, your desires, your wants, your lusts, or the desire of the king. It's idolatry. Every time you feel impatience, not just show impatience, every time you feel impatience, you're committing idolatry. Every time you prioritize yourself before someone else, you commit idolatry. And again, every time you sin, you are saying that you want something, and what you want is more important than what God wants. So you, you yourself become your own idol. You commit idolatry. And we can get really worked up when we see politics promoting sin and think of Ephesians 5.5, 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Uh-oh. We forgot a part, didn't we? Did you know that verse? For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, immoral, impure, covetous, who is an idolater? All of them are. Has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Colossians 3.5 tells us immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed all amount to idolatry. Sin is idolatry. 
greed, sexual sin, lust, all amount to idolatry because people are following their desires rather than following God. Anytime you act on the way you feel instead of obeying God, you're worshiping yourself, and then the next day you rise early and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings and sit down in church and then rise up to play and do it all over again. How cute we are in playing this religiosity. It's got to stop. But realizing the rebellious, the rebellious idolatry that it is. And Colossians 3, 6 and 7 says that it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do you know, sadly, sadly, if you continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know the end of the story in Exodus chapter 32? You'd think the people learned their their lesson from, from this, from the mercy that God shows to them for this heinous hypocrisy. He strikes down 3,000 that day. So merciful. And in a sense, they paid the penalty that all the people deserved and appeased God's wrath for that. He only struck down 3,000. But what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, is that there is another occasion where God then strikes down 23,000. Again, we're acting immorally. They just mocked God by their sin. But listen, so do we when we worship in hypocrisy. That was, that, that was the real issue that was going on in Corinth. Ultimately, by prioritizing their selfish, man-centered wants, their entertainment-driven philosophy, their factious little groups, their clique culture, they mocked God and worshipped in idolatry. We do the exact same thing. We're prone to wander. And for that, like the Corinthians, we need to repent and put on a spirit of unity and love that is brought by the truth of God's Word. But John Calvin referred to the human heart as an idol-making factory, and he said man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. And A.W. Tozer reminds us that an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Let's close in prayer. Precious Father, as we come together tonight... And prayer as a congregation, 
for the ministries of our church, the discipleship of our church, we first and foremost earnestly beseech you that before we seek to do anything that we presume to be honoring to you, that we would search our own hearts. As David petitioned in Psalm 2, that you search any wicked way within us so that we may repent and seek your forgiveness and carry on the labor of the work that you have called us to do in purity, in humility, in a way that is pleasing to you and brings you great joy because it is not done in hypocrisy but in sincerity with a desire to build up your church invest in your kingdom, recognizing that this church and all these things belong to you. They don't belong to us. It's not our name that we represent. But we are, as Colossians says, Ambassadors of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that our church, um, perhaps um, especially emphasizing the ministry of your word, rightly so, because the power to live is found only in your word. Lord, characterize our ministries as that which worships, as Jesus said, ought to be in John chapter 4, in spirit and in truth. We desire both. And so, Lord, as I especially pray for our teaching ministries here at High Point, the many teaching ministries that we have in various aspects, women's ministries, children's ministries, youth ministries, men's discipleship ministries, and many more of the same. We pray that they would be characterized by true integrity. true worship, worship that seeks to honor Christ in everything that we do, to increase our love for Him, and increase our conformity into Him. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermoncast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. 
Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.